Part Second, Chapter Eight, Part Two of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter Eight, Part Two. It was through the Esmeralda cable alone that the Santome mine could be kept in constant touch with the great financier, whose tacit approval made the strength of the Ribierist movement. This movement had its adversaries even there. Sotillo governed Esmeralda with repressive severity, till the adverse course of events upon the distant theatre of civil war forced upon him the reflection that, after all, the great silver mine was fated to become the spoil of the victors but caution was necessary. He began by assuming a dark and mysterious attitude towards the faithful Ribierist municipality of Esmeralda. Later on, the information that the commandant was holding assemblies of officers in the dead of night, which had leaked out somehow, caused those gentlemen to neglect their civil duties altogether and remain shut up in their houses. Suddenly one day all the letters from Sulaco by the overland courier were carried off by a file of soldiers from the post-office to the commandancia, without disguise, concealment, or apology. Sotillo had heard through Caita of the final defeat of Rivera. This was the first open sign of the change in his convictions. Presently notorious Democrats, who had been living till then in constant fear of arrest, leg-irons, and even floggings, could be observed going in and out of the great door of the commandancia, where the horses of the orderlies doze under their heavy saddles, while the men in ragged uniforms and pointed straw hats lounge on a bench, with their naked feet stuck out beyond the strip of shade, and a sentry, in a red baize coat, with holes at the elbows, stands at the top of the steps, glaring haughtily at the common people, who uncover their heads to him as they pass. Sotillo's ideas did not soar above the care for his personal safety and the chance of plundering the town in his charge, but he feared that such late adhesion would earn but scant gratitude from the victors. He had believed just a little too long in the power of the San Tome mine, the seized correspondence that confirmed his previous information of a large amount of silver ingots lying in the Sulaco custom-house. To gain possession of it would be a clear Monterist move, a sort of service that would have to be rewarded. With the silver in his hands he could make terms for himself and his soldiers. He was aware neither of the riots nor of the President's escape to Sulaco, and the close pursuit led by Montero's brother, the guerrillero. The game seemed in his own hands. The initial moves were the seizure of the cable telegraph office and the securing of the government steamer lying in the narrow creek which is the harbor of Esmeralda. The last was effected without difficulty by a company of soldiers swarming with a rush over the gangways as she lay alongside the quay. But the lieutenant charged with the duty of arresting the telegraphist halted on the way before the only café in Esmeralda where he distributed some brandy to his men and refreshed himself at the expense of the owner, a known ribierist. The whole party became intoxicated and proceeded on their mission up the street, yelling and firing random shots at the windows. This little festivity, which might have turned out dangerous to the telegraphist's life, enabled him in the end to send his warning to Sulaco. The lieutenant, staggering upstairs with a drawn sabre, was before long kissing him on both cheeks in one of those swift changes of mood peculiar to a state of drunkenness. He clasped the telegraphist close round the neck assuring them that all the officers of the Esmeralda garrison were going to be made colonels, while tears of happiness streamed down his sodden face. Thus it came about that the town major, coming along later, 
found the whole party sleeping on the stairs and in passages, and the telegraphist, who scorned this chance of escape, very busy clicking the key of the transmitter. The major led him away bareheaded, with his hands tied behind his back, but concealed the truth from Sotillo, who remained in ignorance of the warning dispatched to Sulaco. The colonel was not the man to let any sort of darkness stand in the way of the planned surprise. It appeared to him a dead certainty. His heart was set upon his object with an ungovernable, childlike impatience. Ever since the steamer had rounded Punta Mala to enter the deeper shadow of the gulf, he had remained on the bridge in a group of officers as excited as himself. Distracted between the coaxings and menaces of Sotillo and his staff, the miserable commander of the steamer, kept her moving with as much prudence as they would let him exercise. Some of them had been drinking heavily, no doubt, but the prospect of laying hands on so much wealth made them absurdly foolhardy, and at the same time extremely anxious. The old major of the battalion, a stupid, suspicious man who had never been afloat in his life, distinguished himself by putting out suddenly the binnacle light, the only one allowed on board for the necessities of navigation. He could not understand of what use it could be for finding the way. To the vehement protestations of the ship's captain, he stamped his foot and tapped the handle of his sword. "'Aha! I have unmasked you!' he cried triumphantly. "'You are tearing your hair out from despair at my acuteness. Am I a child to believe that a light in that brass box can show you where the harbour is? I am an old soldier, I am. I can smell a traitor a league off. You wanted that gleam to betray our approach to your friend, the Englishman.' A thing like that show you the way. What a miserable lie. Que picardia. You Sulaco people are all in the pay of those foreigners. You deserve to be run through the body with my sword. Other officers, crowding round, tried to calm his indignation, repeating persuasively, No, no, this is an appliance of the mariners, Major. This is no treachery. The captain of the transport flung himself face downwards on the bridge and refused to rise. Put an end to me at once, he repeated in a stifled voice. Sotillo had to interfere. The uproar and confusion on the bridge became so great that the helmsman fled from the wheel. He took refuge in the engine-room and alarmed the engineers, who, disregarding the threats of the soldiers set on guard over them, stopped the engines, protesting that they would rather be shot than run the risk of being drowned down below. This was the first time Nostromo and Decoule heard the steamer stop. After order had been restored and the binnacle lamp relighted, she went ahead again, passing wide of the lighter in her search for the Isabels. The group could not be made out, and, at the pitiful entreaties of the captain, Sotillo allowed the engines to be stopped again to wait for one of those periodical lightenings of the darkness caused by the shifting of the cloud canopy spread above the waters of the gulf. Sotillo, on the bridge, muttered from time to time angrily to the captain. The other, in an apologetic and cringing tone, begged Sumerset, the colonel, to take into consideration the limitations put upon human faculties by the darkness of the night. Sotillo swelled with rage and impatience. It was the chance of a lifetime. "'If your eyes are no more use to you than this, I shall have them put out,' he yelled. The captain of the steamer made no answer, for just then the mass of the great Isabel loomed up darkly after a passing shower, then vanished, as if swept away by a wave of greater obscurity preceding another downpour. This was enough for him. In the voice of a man come back to life again, he informed Sotillo that in an hour he would be alongside the Sulaco wharf. The ship was put then full speed on the course, and a great bustle of preparation for landing arose among the soldiers on her deck. It was heard distinctly by Decoud and Nostromo. The Capataz understood its meaning. They had made out the Isabels, and were going on now, 
in a straight line for Sulaco. He judged that they would pass close, but believed that lying still like this, with the sail lowered, the lighter could not be seen. No, not even if they rubbed sides with us, he muttered. The rain began to fall again, first like a wet mist, then with a heavier touch, thickening into a smart perpendicular downpour, and the hiss and thump of the approaching steamer was coming extremely near. Decoud, with his eyes full of water and lowered head, asked himself how long it would be before she drew past, when unexpectedly he felt a lurch. An inrush of foam broke swishing over the stern, simultaneously with a crack of timbers and a staggering shock. He had the impression of an angry hand laying hold of the lighter and dragging it along to destruction. The shock, of course, had knocked him down, and he found himself rolling in a lot of water at the bottom of the lighter. A violent churning went on alongside. A strange and amazed voice cried out something above him in the night. He heard a piercing shriek for help from Senor Hirsch. He kept his teeth hard set all the time. It was a collision. The steamer had struck the lighter obliquely, heeling her over till she was half swamped, starting some of her timbers, and swinging her head parallel to her own course with the force of the blow. The shock of it on board of her was hardly perceptible. All the violence of that collision was, as usual, felt only on board the smaller craft. Even Nostromo himself thought that this was perhaps the end of his desperate adventure. He too had been flung away from the long tiller, which took charge in the lurch. Next moment the steamer would have passed on, leaving the lighter to sink or swim after having shouldered her thus out of her way, and without even getting a glimpse of her form, had it not been that, being deeply laden with stores and the great number of people on board, her anchor was low enough to hook itself into one of the wire shrouds of the lighter's mast. For the space of two or three gasping breaths that new rope held against the sudden strain, it was this that gave Decoud the sensation of the snatching pull, dragging the lighter away to destruction. The cause of it, of course, was inexplicable to him. The whole thing was so sudden that he had no time to think. But all his sensations were perfectly clear. He had kept complete possession of himself. In fact, he was even pleasantly aware of that calmness at the very moment of being pitched headfirst over the transom to struggle on his back in a lot of water. Senor Hirsch's shriek he had heard and recognized while he was regaining his feet, always with that mysterious sensation of being dragged headlong through the darkness. Not a word, not a cry escaped him. He had no time to see anything, and following upon the despairing screams for help, the dragging motion ceased so suddenly that he staggered forward with open arms and fell against the pile of the treasure-boxes. He clung to them instinctively, in the vague apprehension of being flung about again, and immediately he heard another lot of shrieks for help, prolonged and despairing, not near him at all, but unaccountably in the distance, away from the lighter altogether, as if some spirit in the night were mocking at Senor Hirsch's terror and despair. Then all was still, as still as when you wake up in your bed in a dark room from a bizarre and agitated dream. The lighter rocked slightly, the rain was still falling. Two groping hands took hold of his bruised sides from behind, and the capataz's voice whispered in his ear, Silence for your life! Silence! The steamer has stopped! Decoud listened. The gulf was dumb. He felt the water nearly up to his knees. Are we sinking? he asked in a faint breath. I don't know. Nostromo breathed back to him. Senor, make not the slightest sound. Hirsch, when ordered forward by Nostromo, had not returned into his first hiding-place. He had fallen near the mast and had no strength to rise. Moreover, he feared to move. He had given himself up for dead, but not on any rational grounds. It was simply a cruel and terrifying feeling. Whenever he tried to think what would become of him, his teeth would start chattering violently. He was too absorbed in the utter misery of his fear to take notice of anything. 
Though he was stifling under the lighter's sail, which Nostromo had unwittingly lowered on top of him, he did not even dare to put out his head till the very moment of the steamer striking. Then, indeed, he leaped right out, spurred on to new miracles of bodily vigor by this new shape of danger. The inrush of water when the lighter heeled over unsealed his lips. His shriek, Save me! was the first distinct warning of the collision for the people on board the steamer. Next moment the wire shroud parted, and the released anchor swept over the lighter's forecastle. It came against the breast of Senor Hirsch, who simply seized hold of it, without in the least knowing what it was, but curling his arms and legs upon the part above the fluke with an invincible, unreasonable tenacity. The lighter yawned off wide, and the steamer, moving on, carried him away, clinging hard and shouting for help. It was some time, however, after the steamer had stopped, that his position was discovered. His sustained yelping for help seemed to come from somebody swimming in the water. At last a couple of men went over the bows and hauled him on board. He was carried straight off to Sotillo on the bridge. His examination confirmed the impression that some craft had been run over and sunk, but it was impracticable on such a dark night to look for the positive proof of floating wreckage. Sotillo was more anxious than ever now to enter the harbor without loss of time. The idea that he had destroyed the principal object of his expedition was too intolerable to be accepted. This feeling made the story he had heard appear the more incredible. Senor Hirsch, after being beaten a little for telling lies, was thrust into the chart-room. But he was beaten only a little. His tale had taken the heart out of Sotillo's staff, though they all repeated round their chief, Impossible! Impossible! with the exception of the old major, who triumphed gloomily. I told you, I told you, he mumbled. I could smell some treachery, some diableria, a league off. Meantime, the steamer had kept on her way towards Sulaco, where only the truth of that matter could be ascertained. Decoud and Nostromo heard the loud turning of her propeller diminish and die out, and then, with no useless words, busied themselves in making for the Isabels. The last shower had brought with it a gentle but steady breeze. The danger was not over yet, and there was no time for talk. The lighter was leaking like a sieve. They splashed in the water at every step. The capataz put into Decoud's hand the handle of the pump which was fitted at the side aft, and at once, without question or remark, Decoud began to pump in utter forgetfulness of every desire but that of keeping the treasure afloat. Nostromo hoisted the sail, flew back to the tiller, pulled at the sheet like mad. The short flare of a match, they had been kept dry in a tight tin box, though the man himself was completely wet, disclosed to the toiling Decoud the eagerness of his face, bent low over the box of the compass, and the attentive stare of his eyes. He knew now where he was, and he hoped to run the sinking lighter ashore in the shallow cove, where the high cliff-like end of the great Isabel is divided in two equal parts by a deep and overgrown ravine. Decoud pumped without intermission. Nostromo steered without relaxing for a second the intense, peering effort of his stare. Each of them was as if utterly alone with his task. It did not occur to them to speak. There was nothing in common between them but the knowledge that the damaged lighter must be slowly but surely sinking. In that knowledge, which was like the crucial test of their desires, they seemed to have become completely estranged, as if they had discovered in the very shock of the collision that the loss of the lighter would not mean the same thing to them both. This common danger brought their differences in aim, in view, in character, and in position, into absolute prominence in the private vision of each. There was no bond of conviction, of common idea. They were merely two adventurers pursuing his own adventure, involved in the same imminence of deadly peril. Therefore they had nothing to say to each other. But this peril, this only incontrovertible truth in which they shared, seemed to act as an inspiration to their mental and bodily powers. 
there was certainly something almost miraculous in the way the capataz made the cove with nothing but the shadowy hint of the island's shape and the vague gleam of a small sandy strip for a guide where the ravine opens between the cliffs and a slender shallow rivulet meanders out of the bushes to lose itself in the sea the lighter was run ashore and the two men with a taciturn undaunted energy began to discharge her precious freight carrying each ox-hide box up the bed of the rivulet beyond the bushes to a hollow place which the caving in of the soil had made below the roots of a large tree its big smooth trunk leaned like a falling column far over the trickle of water running amongst the loose stones a couple of years before nostromo had spent a whole sunday all alone exploring the island he explained this to decoud after their task was done and they sat weary in every limb with their legs hanging down the low bank and their backs against the tree like a pair of blind men aware of each other and their surroundings by some indefinable sixth sense yes nostromo repeated i'd never forget a place i have carefully looked at once he spoke slowly almost lazily as if there had been a whole leisurely life before him instead of the scanty two hours before daylight the existence of the treasure barely concealed in this improbable spot laid a burden of secrecy upon every contemplated step upon every intention and plan of future conduct he felt the partial failure of this desperate affair and trusted to the great reputation he had known how to make for himself however it was also a partial success his vanity was half appeased his nervous irritation had subsided you never know what may be of use he pursued with his usual quietness of tone and manner i spent a whole miserable sunday in exploring this crumb of land a misanthropic sort of occupation muttered decoud viciously you had no money i suppose to gamble with and to fling out amongst the girls in your usual haunts capataz eh vero claimed the capataz surprised into the use of his native tongue by so much perspicacity i had not therefore i did not want to go amongst those beggarly people accustomed to my generosity it is looked for from the capataz of the cargadores who are the rich men and as it were the caballeros amongst the common people i don't care for cards but as a pastime and as to those girls that boast of having opened their doors to my knock you know i wouldn't look at any one of them twice except for what the people would say they are queer the good people of sulaco and i've got much useful information simply by listening patiently to the talk of the women that everybody believed i was in love with poor teresa could never understand that on that particular sunday senor she scolded so that i went out of the house swearing that i would never darken their door again unless to fetch away my hammock and my chest of clothes senor there is nothing more exasperating than to hear a woman you respect rail against your good reputation when you have not a single brass coin in your pocket i untied one of the small boats and pulled myself out of the harbor with nothing but three cigars in my pocket to help me spend the day on this island but the water of this rivulet you hear under your feet is cool and sweet and good senor both before and after a smoke he was silent for a while then added reflectively that was the first sunday after i brought down the white-whiskered english rico all the way down the mountains from the paramo on the top of the entrada pass and in the coach too no coach had gone up or down that mountain road within the memory of man senor till i brought this one down in charge of fifty peons working like one man with ropes pickaxes and poles under my direction that was the rich englishman who as the people say pays for the making of this railway he was very pleased with me but my wages were not due till the end of the month he slid down the bank suddenly 
Decoud heard the splash of his feet in the brook and followed his footsteps down the ravine. His form was lost among the bushes till he had reached the strip of sand under the cliff, as often happens in the gulf when the showers during the first part of the night had been frequent and heavy. The darkness had thinned considerably towards the morning, though there were no signs of daylight as yet. The cargo lighter, relieved of its precious burden, rocked feebly, half afloat, with her forefoot on the sand. A long rope stretched away like a black cotton thread across the strip of white beach to the grapnel Nostromo had carried ashore and hooked to the stern of a tree-like shrub in the very opening of the ravine. There was nothing for Decoud but to remain on the island. He received from Nostromo's hands whatever food the foresight of Captain Mitchell had put on board the lighter and deposited it temporarily in the little dinghy which, upon their arrival, they had hauled up and out of sight amongst the bushes. It was to be left with him. The island was to be a hiding-place, not a prison. He could pull out to a passing ship. The OSN Company's mailboats passed close to the islands when going into Sulaco from the north, but the Minerva carrying off the ex-president had taken the news up north of the disturbances in Sulaco. It was possible that the next steamer down would get instructions to miss the port altogether, since the town, as far as the Minerva's officers knew, was for the time being in the hands of the rabble. This would mean that there would be no steamer for a month, as far as the mail service went, but Decoud had to take his chance of that. The island was his only shelter from the proscription hanging over his head. The capataz was, of course, going back. The unloaded lighter leaked much less, and he thought that she would keep afloat as far as the harbor. He passed to Decoud, standing knee-deep alongside, one of the two spades which belonged to the equipment of each lighter for use when ballasting ships. By working with it carefully, as soon as there was daylight enough to see, Decoud could loosen a mass of earth and stones overhanging the cavity in which they had deposited the treasure, so that it would look as if it had fallen naturally. It would cover up not only the cavity, but even all traces of their work, the footsteps, the displaced stones, and even the broken bushes. Besides, who would think of looking either for you or the treasure here? Nostromo continued, as if he could not tear himself away from the spot. Nobody is ever likely to come here. What could any man want with this piece of earth as long as there is room for his feet on the mainland? The people in this country are not curious. There are even no fishermen here to intrude upon your worship. All the fishing that is done in the gulf goes on near Zapiga, over there. Senor, if you are forced to leave this island before anything can be arranged for you, do not try to make for Zapiga. It is a settlement of thieves and matreros, where they would cut your throat promptly for the sake of your gold watch and chain. And, senor, think twice before confiding in anyone whatever, even in the officers of the company's steamers, if you ever get on board one. Honesty alone is not enough for security. You must look to discretion and prudence in a man. And always remember, senor, before you open your lips for a confidence, that this treasure may be left safely here for hundreds of years. Time is on its side, senor and silver is an incorruptible metal that can be trusted to keep its value forever. An incorruptible metal, he repeated as if the idea had given him a profound pleasure. As some men are said to be, Decoud pronounced inscrutably, while the capataz, who busied himself in bailing out the lighter with a wooden bucket, went on throwing the water over the side with a regular splash. Decoud, incorrigible in his skepticism, reflected not cynically, but with a general satisfaction that this man was made incorruptible by his enormous vanity, that finest form of egoism which can take on the aspect of every virtue. Nostromo ceased bailing, and, as if struck with a sudden thought, dropped the bucket with a clatter into the lighter. "'Have you any message?' he asked in a lowered voice. "'Remember, I shall be asked questions.' 
you must find the hopeful words that ought to be spoken to the people in town i trust for that your intelligence and your experience capataz you understand si senor for the ladies yes yes said the coot hastily your wonderful reputation will make them attach a great value to your words therefore be careful what you say i am looking forward he continued feeling the fatal touch of contempt for himself to which his complex nature was subject i am looking forward to a glorious and successful ending to my mission do you hear capataz use the words glorious and successful when you speak to the senorita your own mission is accomplished gloriously and successfully you have indubitably saved the silver of the mine not only this silver but probably all the silver that shall ever come out of it nostromo detected the ironic tone i dare say senor don martin he said moodily there are very few things that i am not equal to ask the foreign signori i a man of the people who cannot always understand what you mean but as to this lot which i must leave here let me tell you that i would believe it a greater safety if you had not been with me at all an exclamation escaped decoud and a short pause followed shall i go back with you to sulaco he asked in an angry tone shall i strike you dead with my knife where you stand retorted nostromo contemptuously it would be the same thing as taking you to sulaco come senor your reputation is in your politics and mine is bound up with the fate of this silver do you wonder i wish there had been no other man to share my knowledge i wanted no one with me senor you could not have kept the lighter afloat without me decoud almost shouted you would have gone to the bottom with her yes uttered nostromo slowly alone here was a man decoud reflected that seemed as though he would have preferred to die rather than deface the perfect form of his egoism such a man was safe in silence he helped the capataz to get the grapnel on board nostromo cleared the shelving shore with one push of the heavy oar and decoud found himself solitary on the beach like a man in a dream a sudden desire to hear a human voice once more seized upon his heart the lighter was hardly distinguishable from the black water upon which she floated what do you think has become of hirsch he shouted knocked overboard and drowned cried nostromo's voice confidently out of the black wastes of sky and sea around the islet keep close in the ravine senor i shall try to come out to you in a night or two a slight swishing rustle showed that nostromo was setting the sail it filled all at once with a sound as of a single loud drum-tap decoud went back to the ravine nostromo at the tiller looked back from time to time at the vanishing mass of the great isabel which little by little merged into the uniform texture of the night at last when he turned his head again he saw nothing but a smooth darkness like a solid wall then he too experienced that feeling of solitude which had weighed heavily on decoud after the lighter had slipped off the shore but while the man on the island was oppressed by a bizarre sense of unreality affecting the very ground upon which he walked the mind of the capataz of the cargadores turned alertly to the problem of future conduct nostromo's faculties working on parallel lines enabled him to steer straight to keep a lookout for hermosa near which he had to pass and to try to imagine what would happen to-morrow in sulaco to-morrow or as a matter of fact to-day since the dawn was not very far sotillo would find out in what way the treasure had gone a gang of cargadores had been employed in loading it into a railway truck from custom-house storerooms and running the truck on to the wharf there would be arrests made and certainly before noon sotillo would know in what manner the silver had left sulaco and who it was that took it out nostromo's intention had been to sail right into the harbour but at this thought by a sudden touch of the tiller 
He threw the lighter into the wind and checked her rapid way. His reappearance with the very boat would raise suspicions, would cause surmises, would absolutely put Sotillo on the track. He himself would be arrested, and once in the calabozo there was no saying what they would do to him to make him speak. He trusted himself, but he stood up to look round. Nearby, Hermosa showed low its white surface as flat as a table, with the slight run of the sea raised by the breeze washing over its edges noisily. The lighter must be sunk at once. He allowed her to drift with her sail aback. There was already a good deal of water in her. He allowed her to drift towards the harbour entrance, and letting the tiller swing about, squatted down and busied himself in loosening the plug. With that out she would fill very quickly, and every lighter carried a little iron ballast, enough to make her go down when full of water. When he stood up again the noisy wash about the Hermosa sounded far away, almost inaudible, and already he could make out the shape of land about the harbour entrance. This was a desperate affair, and he was a good swimmer. A mile was nothing to him, and he knew of an easy place for landing just below the earthworks of the old abandoned fort. It occurred to him with a peculiar fascination that this fort was a good place in which to sleep the day through after so many sleepless nights. With one blow of the tiller he unshipped for the purpose, he knocked the plug out, but did not take the trouble to lower the sail. He felt the water welling up heavily about his legs before he leaped onto the taffrail. There, upright and motionless, in his shirt and trousers only, he stood waiting. When he had felt her settle, he sprang far away with a mighty splash. At once he turned his head. The gloomy, clouded dawn from behind the mountains showed him on the smooth waters the upper corner of the sail, a dark, wet triangle of canvas waving slightly to and fro. He saw it vanish, as if jerked under, and then struck out for the shore. End of chapter 8, part 2